So hey everybody, this is Daniel Abrahams and today on Mini Multinational we'll talk with my guest about taking outside money to fuel global growth, the mindset of an angel investor and the pitfalls you can avoid when taking a company global. So without further ado, it's a real pleasure to welcome my good friend, mentor and to add a little bit of context, angel investor in the company I co-founded, Barak Rabinowitz. Barak has been called an esteemed activist in the startup and high-tech space. He's built and sold multiple companies and is now the managing partner of F2VC. My guest and friend has backed over 12 successful Israeli startups as an angel investor. Finally, he holds an MBA from Harvard Business School and served in a paratroop brigade of the IDF. So Barak, welcome to Mini Multinational. Thanks, Daniel. It's great to be here. Awesome. So after one false start where you had to sort of scramble over from your office, we, we finally got there. So it's, uh, it's great to have you. Um, to kick off, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, or I guess in tech jargon, your elevator pitch. So, like many people in Israel, I'm an immigrant. Uh, it's one of the secrets, I think, to the startup nation. Um, I grew up in Ohio in a small town, um, and you know, my earliest business foray was trading baseball cards. And I'm very proud that I knew nothing about baseball, but I loved the buying and selling and trading and hustling uh, of it, and I set my sights on a career in business as a result. Studied at Georgetown, uh, got into banking, and then had my first startup right after September 11th, where I formed a, a nonprofit to help the victims of the World Trade Center terrorist attack. Uh, manage their their finances, primarily widows who are inheriting money, uh, steer clear of all kinds of sharks out there in the market. Uh, I then came out to Israel to help open Morgan Stanley Israel, uh, followed by uh, 18 months in the in the Israeli Defense Forces, Harvard Business School, three startups, and now venture capital. Awesome. So I really want to delve a bit deeper under the bonnet, back to the beginning. So. Presumably, this uh, trading of baseball cards inspired the beginnings of your entrepreneurialism. Um, and if we just go into slightly more detail around how the beginnings of your career took shape, um, to be honest, we've got to know each other so well over the last couple of years. But if we rewind back to, to the early days, this is something I don't even know about too well. So almost making that bridge between you um, in the early days of your career that then led to you becoming a portfolio angel investor. It would be fantastic to almost hear a little bit more about the days at Morgan Stanley and, and some of the earlier um, parts of your career journey. Sure. So I think my career is, it's, is very much was follow the rat race and then a, 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 a moment of clarity. And then uh, following that, I, I like to think I've been taking independent decisions. Uh, so the rat race was... You know, very much a set course, uh, go and study and get good grades and then go and work for an investment bank and be a good analyst and climb the ranks. Um, I did that through Wall Street and then Tel Aviv. Uh, and in my third year, actually, sometimes it takes a, a shock to sort of rattle you and, and make you think different. So in that case, I happened to be in Israel. It happened to be my third year as an analyst, and it also happened to be a period of war, uh, which came to be known as the Second Intifada. So I was standing in my office at the, in one of the towers in Tel Aviv, uh, and all of a sudden I heard a boom, and it was a bomb going off at a, a local bus stop. And I said, holy shit, I can no longer just be a spectator. I have to, you know, do something. So I actually left banking and, and, and signed up for boot camp and then had a very meaningful experience there. Uh, and that was my transition, I think, to thinking like an entrepreneur. 
Awesome. And how did you get into investing? So if you almost take us back to your first angel investment, which yeah. presumably was an exciting, scary um, and a new experience for you. So I just, you know, I was in London after Harvard Business School doing my first startup and I was doing a startup in the games space. Uh, and there were three of us, really just three of us doing meaningful startups, I would say, in 2007 in London. And it was myself and two other individuals who I came to greatly admire. And uh, one of them uh, just said he happened to be raising a, a round of capital. And I didn't even... How big was the round? The round was about a million pounds. And uh, he asked if I'd be interested to take part. And I, somehow I, I was oblivious to the uh, idea that I could even invest in other companies. I just had my own baby. Uh, so I said, sure. And I made, a, I don't know what it was... Uh, a uh, uh, £10,000 investment. Actually, it was my wife who made the investment. Um, that's how it, it, it came to pass. That company... Even more pressure. <laughs> yeah. That company came to be uh, something big. It's called Smarkets. It's a sports betting exchange. It's, it's always ranked now in the top five emerging startups in, in the UK and across Europe. They're on their path to IPO. Uh, there was, a, as I mentioned, three of us. Smarkets was one of them. The other friend is named Nigel... Uh, and he's CEO and founder of FanDuel, and I did not have the uh, the insight to to back him. Uh, but I suppose one out of two isn't bad. His company is now worth well over a billion dollars, and uh, and he's off to the races. And so I want to pick up on that because, as I alluded to um, for the listeners in the intro, you've backed a whole raft of um, companies since you obviously made that first investment into Smarkets. And when you were getting to know the guys and analyzing the business, do you think your level of due diligence at that time compared to the due diligence you would do on even companies like my own currency transfer fast forward a few years has that evolved and matured and what was it like when you were getting to obviously know the business getting under the bonnet and really getting to understand the company um do you believe that you would have asked questions back then that now you obviously know today as your maturity has grown as an angel investor obviously on a kind of portfolio level yeah, I mean, I would say my, my thinking has become more structured, but it's still 80% at an early stage about the team. And in the case of Smarkets, it was two uh, brilliant uh, engineers who had a very clear vision to take on the giant Betfair, uh, who had a, a pretty lousy uh, infrastructure and interface, but just happened to be the first to market. And these guys were taking modern, you know, whether it be the code or the marketing practice or just being uh, more flexible and, and customer friendly, uh, all the pieces in place. The only thing is it took about five years for them to achieve critical mass in terms of liquidity for that business to take off. So I bet on the team. Still, it's my first uh, factor that I take into account today. Uh, but now there's more structure and there is a more comprehensive, broader network that I activate when I look at an opportunity. And when you get to know these teams, what are the signals you want to be picking up? Is it, you know, the fact that they've built and sold companies in the past? Is it specific domain expertise? Um, because obviously downstream, you want to look at the size of the opportunity, the the extent that their tech is is really um, solving a problem and is to, to on on many levels, um, you know, frontier technology as you'd like to call it in these days. But when you're really analysing the team, what what are you looking for? What are the 
Um, what are the red flags? What are the signals that, that make you feel comfortable about a team that you're looking to, to back to one day build a global business? It's interesting because uh, when you're looking at making a new investment, the team is the number one factor. After we make an investment as part of a VC now and part of the structure I talked about, every quarter we meet internally and we rank our companies in the portfolio uh, so that we'll be in a position to be fast and responsive when they're raising more capital or an exit opportunity comes along. And at that point, we're no longer looking at the team because it's a given. The team is in place. Uh, rather, we're looking at the market opportunity to understand how big this could get. But backing up a step, what do I look for at the team? There's something that a very famous banker uh, told us in my analyst training program. Uh, his name is Joe Perella, and he's one of the legends of Wall Street. He said, always be able to tell the shit from the Shinola. <laughs> and I didn't know what that meant. I had to look it up. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> Shinola is shoe polish. Okay. And shit is like the real deal. Yeah. So tell the polish from the real deal. And and what that is is finding the authentic entrepreneur. Now it's a it's a trendy thing to do a startup. It wasn't when I started in 2007, at least not in Europe or in Israel. Um, so there are a lot of, uh, 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 you know, I don't want to scale. There, there are a lot of people that are just uh, – you know, uh, attracted to the excitement and taking a shot at it, whereas others come from uh, really understanding a pain and uh, and building out a solution that makes sense as a result. Well, as my guru, Gary Vaynerchuk, would say, we're living in the greatest era of quote-unquote fake entrepreneurs because mm. there is so much money flowing around. It's, it's almost entrepreneurs are the new rock stars. So I guess... Uh, it is, it is very much a case for, you know, on your side of the fence as an angel investor and now a VC to really uh, get to know the, uh, the ship polish, I think you mentioned. The Shinola. The Shinola. Yeah. Um, and so what are some of the crucial mistakes CEOs make when, when pitching you their idea? What are, let's say, anecdotally, the red flags that come up time and time again? Well, you know, I just had one. I had two, two founders who were super strong on paper, successful track record, lots of experience. Uh, we had signed a term sheet, and uh, the next step is to sign a definitive agreement. And there's a lot of due diligence that happens before and in between, including legal due diligence. And as we were looking at the employment agreement, uh, proposed employment agreement of one of the founders, we saw that he had stipulated he wanted to be 85%. And to me, that's a huge red flag because at such an early stage, we're betting on the team. And there's no 85%. There's 110%. And that's it. Uh, so He wanted to be 85% committed to the venture, i.e. he has side projects? What do you mean by the 85%? Yeah, that's correct. Wow. 85% to the venture, 15% reserved for side projects. And uh, and that was a no-go, even it's though it's very a big binary. You're either all in or not at all. That's how I look at it. Absolutely. And so... I guess you've backed more than how many are we up to now? I said twelve. Is it is it more yeah, than that? From, just from an angel's Oh, side? from an angel, yeah, it's 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 over twelve. And what's your one golden piece of advice to aspiring entrepreneurs looking to raise money? Because I guess from my perspective, not every company needs to raise money to be a significant company. Um, there are a bunch of flight paths one can take to building a good business, but you know, on the basis that a company is fit for raising money, what, what is that sort of one silver bullet piece of advice you'd, you'd give to entrepreneurs? Well, um, I think, you know, I always say money is a commodity and time is the most precious thing. So you really want to uh, uh, spend the time um, understanding who's the partner sitting across the table from you and understanding exactly what you're going to do with the money and how you're going to grow a biz big business. And then the money will fall into place. But don't start it as I did with my first startup, uh, making 
your ability to raise funding, don't make that the litmus test on whether or not you should do the venture. Yeah. And looking from the outside in, it seems the majority of your startups that you've angel invested in, the, uh, the overwhelming concentration is Israeli companies. And so, you know, please God, we're going to have a global listenership, not just, uh, you know, focused around um, the, the startup nation, as we like to call it here in, in Tel Aviv. Um, but what is it about the, the mindset, the DNA of an Israeli founding team that, that makes backing these companies so appealing outside of you being physically present here so you can obviously be close to the companies? I think there's a combination of ambition with humility. In other words, the, the ambition, it starts, uh, you know, in the military, they're, they're basically uh, people who, who have uh, passion for IT and, 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 and skills are grouped together and they're told that the fate of the whole country rests on your shoulders and you have limited resources and go and make it happen. And that turns out to be a very good recipe for startup success. The humility kicks in because you know, these technical teams do not know or fully understand or are open to getting support in order to, uh, you know, reach global markets. And that makes it great for someone like me with a big international background to come in and, and, and work together with the team to achieve a big outcome. So I'm in it for the impact. And here I can make a big impact. And just to end this part of the podcast on you as an angel investor, before we sort of delve into to you as the VC, as much as you can share, what's been your worst experience in angel investing? Um, and what did you learn from that experience? You know, I had, first of all, um, you know, I'd say three write-offs and they all happened to be consumer startups and two out of the three were game companies. So, you know, getting back to humility, I operated game companies and thought I knew it best. Uh, but in fact, I realized that there are a set of characteristics that make for a successful company reliably in Israel and being a consumer facing application is not one of them. Um, my worst experience was probably uh, a company that, uh, you know, was going and executing. They were building a marketplace. They were unsuccessful at raising a significant investment round, but were offered a spot at 500 startups on the West Coast, including funding, and they declined it. They turned it down. And that was very frustrating to me because I'm a fighter, and if you're given you know, any shot, go and take it. Uh, and it just seemed like a cop-out uh, to yeah. take, not only, not only to decline that opportunity, but to see all their investors' funding go down the drain. What was their rationale for turning this down? Their rationale is they didn't feel that it was too little too late. Uh, whereas the other companies, the game companies, they tried and, and, and they did absolutely everything they could to make a success and it didn't work out. And that's fair. We're in the venture capital business. Um, most companies aren't going to work out. But as long as you give it your best shot, you know, that's all fair game and, and we can walk away friends. Absolutely. And out of professional curiosity, how does one become an angel investor or your tip for someone who, I don't know, is in their 50s, 60s, they've got you know, a fair bunch of um, free cash that they want to deploy and get vastly better returns than, than what they get with their bank. Is it the new age of sort of crowdfunding platforms? Is it finding a mentor like you who's sort of been there, seen it, done it, and, and almost kind of like you're playing blackjack, they, they back the investments you're making? Um, what would be the first moves that, that you would encourage to someone looking to actually become an angel investor? You know, it's, uh, it's very easy to lose money doing this. <laughs> very easy. And, and typically someone will make an investment and then they'll have an oh shit moment because honeymoon is over and then reality hits and all the challenges kick in and it's a terrible feeling. So don't do it alone uh, unless you're a real uh, 
expert in a particular sector and want to focus your investments in that sector like cyber. Uh, everything else, you're best off finding a strong local partner on the ground, uh, perhaps putting some capital to work in their platform uh, with the opportunity to co-invest directly in companies and benefit from their extensive due diligence. In other words, it's not a hobby, it's a profession. And if you're not going to make it your profession, you're best off partnering with people who do. And so presumably from that, there needs to be a strategy and, and common sense would tell me there needs to be almost a portfolio, knowing that, you know, a large part of the portfolio will either break even or, or lose you your money. You're almost betting big on the long tail. Is that is that right in saying? Well, yes and no. I mean, VC is a it's a it's an eighty twenty rule where twenty percent <coughs> are going to dr- drive you know eighty percent of the profit, and so you want to concentrate your investments on those twenty percent. The trick is to understand quickly who are the winners and double down on the winners and don't throw good money after bad in the losers. So you put a little bit of money in that seed round with the idea that you'll deploy more capital uh, as the company grows and there'll be future rounds in the best companies. Awesome. So this is almost a nice segue into your current day job, which yeah. presumably is managing director at F2VC. How does it feel almost being on a, on a different side of the fence, let's say, from, I guess, your early days as a, a CEO of a, an oper- a bunch of operating businesses to being a, a portfolio angel investor to now building a fund, raising money for the fund, deploying the capital for the fund. How's it all going? Well, you know, being managing partner of F2 Capital, it's great. Um, The the thing is, I was doing angel investing alongside my uh, operating role as CEO of a company. And the company gave me a perspective and uh, ability to test opportunities before I invested. And at the end of when I sold my company, uh, I thought it'd be my last angel investment as well because I no longer had that platform. And when uh, the idea for F2 Capital came along, it was great because it gave me a platform and a team um, and deal flow uh, that I felt inspired by to continue investing, which is something I love. Um, So we're very focused at seed stage, frontier technology, and I think we do it in a pretty unique and successful way. And are there specific verticals that you're you're backing or are you almost vertical agnostic? Um, You know, time and time again when we've spoken, um, it, the, the word frontier technology comes about, but is it within, I don't know, fintech or ad tech or, or? Yeah. Well, um, in terms of sector focus, we're, we look at data AI connectivity. So data is the new oil in the world. You need artificial intelligence to make sense of the data and make it useful and then push it out to those connected devices where it's being consumed, whether it be mobile phones or autonomous vehicles. And all of those connected devices generate more data, which perpetuates the cycle. So that's broadly speaking. Within there, you have all the specific domains, uh, whether it be fintech, like you mentioned, or others. Awesome. And what are the average check sizes you write for any listeners out there or budding entrepreneurs that are probably Googling right now, www.f2vc or what is the domain? F2vc.com. Awesome. Yeah. And, and so for those that could potentially be a, a potential category leader and, and candidate for an investment from you guys, what what are the check sizes and, and I guess what are the stage of companies you're looking to invest in? Sure. So uh, we invest in seed stage companies, meaning we want to be the first institutional investor into the company. Uh, we're not typically not backing PowerPoints. We're backing uh, at least prototype ready uh, businesses that we can you know, really push out there and support in terms of scale and business development. So and based then, on that, is it still about the team? Because you're obviously looking at the underlying technology. You want to see the, the capability of someone to be able to commercialize 
this frontier technology, but on the basis that you're looking at companies that right now have a prototype, potentially no paying customers, how much of a waiting is it between the team and the technology? Well, I would say that there's two types. There's the repeat successful entrepreneurs and there's everybody else. If you're in everybody else, then probably we need to see a prototype and traction and validation. If you're a repeat successful entrepreneur, we may back you based on a PowerPoint. Uh, and then we have two channels for investing. One is direct, which we're, where we will invest 500K to <coughs> 1.5 million. Uh, and we're targeting, you know, a 20% holding in your company, a meaningful holding, knowing that we're going to be diluted over time. And the other channel is the junction, which is our accelerator, where we engage with four times more company, provide each of them with a small investment, work with them with the idea that we'll deploy more capital into their first seed round. I remember it was a real pleasure. You invited me to uh, to speak to the cohort of uh, startups at the junction. It was It was a great experience. How's How's the new batch? It's great. I just came from the junction now. Every Wednesday at uh, uh, 11 a.m., we do a roundtable. Uh, we call it the Fishbowl, where each of the five companies has to pitch and talk about their uh, challenges in front of an audience of guests from all over the world um, who create spontaneous business development opportunities. The reason we do it that way is because the biggest thing uh, these entrepreneurs need, given that they have the technical skills and platform in place, is storytelling. And the only way to get good at storytelling is like a muscle. You've got to practice it in front of new audiences every week. Awesome. And so from a personal perspective, and I guess where I'm sitting on the entrepreneurial side of the fence, uh, buildingcurrencytransfer.com, I find it fascinating to almost reverse engineer a VC's business model when really looking at who are the partners that are going to join my business. And, and, and I think that founder market fit or founder investor fit, I should say, is is absolutely critical. Um, and so I guess from your perspective, how does your approach change when vetting a company formerly as an angel investor and now as a VC? Uh, and second to that, you know, if you were sat as an entrepreneur looking to raise money from a VC, do you see that level of importance that almost I see as an entrepreneur of of, of getting to understand the VC, the business model behind the size of their fund as almost a, a signal and a sense check as to whether, you know, is there going to be a, a, a meaningful partnership that, that both of us, um, you know, on the, on the entrepreneur side and on the investor side, you know, are we aligned on, on many different levels? How, how crucial is that in, in, I guess, the process of hopefully one day a successful outcome for everybody, not just the entrepreneur or just the VC? Yeah, I think that it's critical for founders to do some uh, homework on the VC. I always tell founders, go and speak to other uh, women or men that we've backed and understand what it was like. And it's also good if you can do that even before you come to the first meeting because you make you, you show you've done your homework and it makes for a more meaningful conversation. So definitely by all means do that and think about and you'll get the answers to whether this VC is a good fit for your company. Um, in terms of investing as a VC, there's this, as an angel, you can generally, if, if you like an opportunity and you have a good reputation, find your way into a round. Maybe it's a small check, but you'll find your way in. As a VC, our model only works if we hold 20% of a company. So uh, it's a much uh, more uh, significant discussion and process that you're running and having with the founders. And you have to balance that excitement about the opportunity, uh, you know, uh, and in the risk and then the fear of missing out. Um, FOMO. FOMO. So fear of missing out will motivate you to be fast. 
On the other hand, you know that most startups fail, so you have to be very careful. And it's that tension that, that's unique, I think, to VC that we try to manage. Uh, and we do that by leveraging a network effectively of uh, corporate partners, of other founders, um, and of folks that we know. And so a lot of listeners are probably either owner-managed businesses or CEOs of companies that are right for raising money. But clearly, VC money isn't the correct flight path for every company to take or necessarily on a very binary basis, the only um, determination, I guess, of success. Um, So in your opinion, under what parameters can folks still build significant, quote unquote, rocket ships without VC money? Um, And if we take that sort of rocket ship analogy, uh, a very fast supercar, you know, isn't necessarily a rocket ship, but it could still be, you know, great and meaningful for founders, um, employees, and even to some degree angel investors, if that's the right approach. So, you know, clearly to simultaneously build, you know, a great product, a great team, and do a land grab without any outside money is is, is going to be a difficult challenge and the odds are against you. But under what sort of circumstances isn't it always correct to, you know, take outside money to build a big business? Well, you know, if you if you look at the, the Forbes 50, the richest people in the world, it's because they have a very uh, big stake in their companies. Um, I was listening to an interview with James Dyson. He owns, I believe, 100% of his company. Richard Branson owns 100% of his company. Um, you know, even people like Henry Ford, they took on investors and then bought them out. So if you have a conviction in your business and uh, have cash flow, then it may not be suitable to take VC funding, especially if you're in a sector where VCs don't uh, focus on. Um, and there are plenty of business sectors like that. On the other hand, cash is an asset. Balance sheet is an asset. And it's an asset for growing, for getting your brand out there, and for recruitment. Uh, so, you know, provided you're able to achieve those things without VC money, then you might want to consider going the independent route. Have you seen companies that on the outside look perfect for VCs that instead take debt? Is that, an, is that a uh, viable flight path to almost go to your bank and, and, and borrow a million quid, two million quid to build your business? Or is that more suited to, let's say, you know, more old fashioned, older school industries where, you know, the bank has some type of collateral, whether it's property or, or whatever it may be. But have you seen in the last, I don't know, year, two years, companies use debt as an alternative to taking VC money? I've seen uh, definitely there are, there's, there's called venture debt, which is a bit of a hybrid, um, become more popular. Uh, it's generally for more mature companies because lenders, they need to see a balance sheet. They need to see a clear, predictable cash flow to, to service the debt. And if you have that, then it can be a very attractive route uh, because you'll suffer less dilution as a result, but still get the cash to fund your growth. Great. And so moving on from sort of your life as a VC to some, I guess, practical bits of advice you can help for companies looking to go global. As you know, this podcast is called Mini Multinational. My overriding goal when building this is, I guess, to equip ambitious CEOs with inside knowledge from experts like yourself on not just growing a business in their home market, but taking that business to new global markets as a way of of scaling up. Um, and so with this in mind, when do you believe a company is ready to go global? I mean, if you look at the local market here in Israel, it's, it's a fantastic um, starting point to beta test your product. But 
I guess just looking at it on a macro level, the size of the country and and your opportunity for building a big, meaningful company is is not so viable just focusing on a home market. And presumably there are a lot of listeners from from other countries that also are, you know, similar in size to Israel. But when is a company ready to go global in your mind? I mean, we would say a company is ready to go global when they, um, they have a stable platform, um, some pilots that, uh, you know, have put some traffic through the service and tested the stability. Uh, and then you got to go global immediately because product market fit means nothing over here in our small local market. Uh, so you got to put yourself in front of the real customers and see how they respond and then optimize for them. And also, I guess I was having this conversation yesterday at lunch it's not so meaningful to a U.S. client or investor to say, hey, I've got Avi from Maccabi Tel Aviv who's tested out the product and he really likes it. I guess because of the whole incestuous nature of the local ecosystem where everyone knows everyone, almost everyone's willing to try, you know, a product, particularly if you're getting it for free as a proof of concept, a POC. And so when you're going out there in, in, in New York, L.A. or or, or London and, and trying to win that first contract, if that's the type of business you're running, um, you know, getting meaningful sort of validation and traction beyond simply your first cousin whose father is the relevant person at the company doesn't really cut it on a global stage. Yeah, that's right. All startups, they have to be capital efficient and <coughs> scalable. And scalable means do you have methods of getting out there to the world? Sure. And so can you share a success story, either you as an operator of a business or a company you've backed, um, where you were successfully part of establishing an overseas presence or growing into a new market out of the early days of, of, of building a stable product, as you would like to call it, in, in the home market? Yeah. I mean, you know, an early uh, one example on the early stage is looking at a company called uh, SuperQuery uh, that we recently backed. You have a strong technical team but needed to sell their uh, big data optimization, serverless big data optimization product to the world and didn't have the ability to hire, you know, sales team, traditional sales team. So they created a growth hack, a browser extension for Chrome that anyone, developer, could install and start monitoring the queries in their organization. And like that, the thing spread virally. So it's not just games that can spread virally. It's also very much enterprise software. And that bubbles up from the developers all the way up to the CTO who eventually makes the purchase. And that company is now powering everyone from Zendesk to Spotify to, to you name it. Uh, so that was thrilling to see that alignment of passion, capabilities, and opportunity. And have you seen companies where going global has always been on the agenda from day one, but they've almost tried to do it too quickly and too prematurely, whether it's, uh, you know, the employees or the general managers that they hire over there, and the, it didn't fit with the, you know, the founder DNA or the company DNA back home, um, or the product just wasn't ready to take abroad. Um, when do you believe it's too early to go global and have you seen that in, in your career so far? Well, it's interesting, you know, there is no silver bullet and by that I mean uh, very rarely can you outsource this. It's always got to be the founder who's leading the charge and that becomes more difficult I think as our lives get more complicated and we have <laughs> kids and, and, and responsibilities, uh, which is one of the reasons I'm on the VC side now and not on the entrepreneur side. Uh, but I have 
often seen it fail where... Your wife doesn't fancy moving over to Palo Alto. <laughs> no, maybe for a sabbatical. <laughs> but, uh, you know, where, where you've tried to hire a fancy VP sales and it's just not the same because of distance from the R&D team and speed and responsiveness and a whole myriad of factors. Uh, so where it typically succeeds is where one of the co-founders goes and cultivates the market and team around him. And I, and I think as an extension to that, I had a bit of advice the other day because at CurrencyTransfer.com, we're looking at a an incursion into the US this year. We're, we're very excited about that being a, a big project for us in 2018. And it was really smart what um, this chap was telling me where he's saying it's not just about the founder going over there, but it's a founder or a very key employee who understands the company culture, understands the, the DNA of the business, understands every nuance of, of, of what we're looking to do uh, in the company and pair that person up almost immediately with someone who understands the local market, understands mm. all the rabbit holes one can go down, um, has the domain expertise and almost launching as a strategy with those two people to some degree side by side, your key guy from your home country and almost a key guy very early on off the bat who is very, very native um, in in that particular market that you're going after. Yeah. Awesome. And so looking at the US, because presumably from all the, uh, from all the observations I've had since moving to Israel three or so years ago from London, um, the US is typically the first destination after, after Israel. So where have you seen um, the preference typically between sort of the East Coast and the West Coast? And is it simply based on the type of business you're running? Is it based on the capital you're looking to raise where my limited knowledge tells me that there's probably more money coming from sort of California than there is from New York? What are the uh, things, let's say, local entrepreneurs in Israel or London or wherever should be thinking about when trying to establish a presence in, in the US between picking almost the East Coast and the West Coast as, as their plan of attack? Yeah, I think it's very company specific and, and personal. Um, I feel personally more comfortable in New York uh, because of the networks I have because I grew up kind of on the eastern side of the United States, whereas in the West Coast it's very daunting because that's the Mecca and people are very well entrenched and, you know, you're constantly in somebody's shadow. Uh, however, for certain businesses, big data companies and others, you have to be on the West Coast because that's where the giants are. Other businesses like e-commerce, finance can do very well on the East Coast. Absolutely. And have you backed any companies, um, again, either as an angel or a, or a VC, where management or the entire company is located very far afield? And if so, how do you manage those types of investments where geographically you're not close to mind management and the team? Well, that gets back to what we're backing founders. There's got to be a very strong chemistry between me and the founders I back. So if you trust them, you don't mind if they're 5,000 miles away? We try to get them away as fast as possible. <laughs> Cool. And so to end the podcast, it's very exciting. This is episode 002, my first interview. And so uh, definitely a bit rusty, but hopefully we'll be optimizing going ahead moving forward. And, I, and the way I want to end a lot of these interviews is just some final quick fire questions, um, hacks that can help CEOs, as I said, owner managed businesses that, that are listening to this um, and almost getting some insights from the brilliant people that we're bringing on to to the show. So to kick off, is there a hack CEOs can deploy for work-life balance? It's a 
stressful beast building a company. For me, the biggest hack has been podcasts. I listen to how I built this, for example, and it's it's brilliant. Um, and I use my commutes, or even when I'm changing diapers or doing the dishes, uh, just to infuse myself with fresh knowledge, inside inspiration every single day. I'm super bullish on voice. I think it also sells you back your time, and so anything that's much you know, that gets rid of friction. You know, it's hard to sort of work out and watch a YouTube video or, um, you know, have a phone call, but really being able to to do to multitask. And I think voice lets you do that. So I, I'm on the same page. I mean, that's almost inspired me to host my own radio show, so to speak. Um, what's a must read book for ambitious CEOs? A must read book for ambitious CEOs. Um, hmm. I generally take my inspiration from history. So I, I read just recently uh, Upton Sinclair's uh, The Jungle, uh, and then I moved on to his next book, which was about uh, Henry Ford. Uh, so these are, you know, you know, a generation of entrepreneurs who are blazing trails at their time, but their lessons are timeless. So check out Upton Sinclair. It's not what I expected to hear. I mean, I think if I asked a testbed of the next 10 interviews, it would be probably books written by entrepreneurs around specific areas of you know growth hacking your business but that's that's super interesting that you almost go way back in time to help you know a uh, the mindset of a, of a successful entrepreneur um, where do you consume your news on on tech the market how do you keep your finger on the pulse is it sort of flicking through that sort of habit forming way on Twitter feeds or or um, you know flipboard what what is the way that you consume your news? So it's a combination of Flipboard and Twitter, whereby I create my own Flipboard for the people I follow on Twitter, and then the information is presented to me in a, in a way I can easily flip through. Awesome. And by the way, I hope you'll be subscribing to Mini Multinational. I already have. <laughs> Pitching investors, your, your one top tip. Start with your most compelling fact. And is that typically the problem? that they're trying to solve, the team? Uh, it, it's specific. So if it's currency transfer, it may be we process a billion dollars in, in, in volume. If you happen to be a fighter pilot, mention you're a fighter pilot. Uh, if you have 20 patents, mention it's 20 patents. Play to your strengths. Yeah, with the fact. One productivity tool or software that you use every day that you rely on, whether it be Slack or... Um, we, you know, recently implemented our own CRM system. It's part of our philosophy of practice what you preach. It's called uh, Savanta, and it's excellent for our deal flow management. Awesome. Barack, it's been such a pleasure. Um, I've often said when we've had coffees or lunches, I wish this was recorded because, you know, I, you know every interaction I have with you as, a, as an investor in my, in my business, um, you know, I'm sure that advice and, and, and tidbits of support you give is very valuable to to people beyond me and again that was kind of marinating through my head when thinking about creating this podcast there are so many moments when you're having those one-to-one -one interactions that that can be leveraged to help other you know ambitious entrepreneurs succeed so i'm really pleased we did this um the listeners probably don't know but we we spoke about you know me building a a, a podcast and 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 all the benefits it can bring. So I'm glad we, we finally made this happen and it would have been wrong not to have you as my first ever interview. Hopefully we'll look back in about 10, 20, 30 interviews time and 
I'll be more polished and uh, we can only use this as a starting point to iteratively get better and better. So thank you really ever so much. And, and just to finish, how can guests get in touch with you or listen? Sorry, how can listeners get in touch with you, whether um, they just want to consume your content or whether they feel that you could be helpful to them either as an investor or or, or from a biz dev perspective? partnership perspective how can uh, how can our listeners get in touch sure so easiest would be email barack at f2vc.com perfect barack it's been a, a real pleasure and thank you everyone for tuning in to episode 002 of mini multinational